Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadee Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Kin in an English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume 7, chapters 21 through 34. We're finishing up this book today, and then we're going to be moving into volume 8 next week, which is the foremost householders. This is where you're going to learn teachings related to household practitioners to help you journey closer to the enlightened mental state where the mind can be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. As we go in our class, the way that we typically start is with meditation, but because we have 14 chapters to study today, we're going to forgo meditation and go right into studying the chapters of 21 through 34. And what I usually do is invite students who are in Zoom to read a chapter. And then after they read, I will then share some teachings on that chapter and then open up to any questions that you have, whether you're in Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom, you can put your question into the comment section and I'll be able to see that and then answer any questions that you have. And if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'd like to welcome all of you and at the same time invite you to join for our study group where we're studying the words of the Buddha. And oftentimes students will perhaps read these chapters before class if they're studying along regularly. You might read these before by going to buddhadailywisdom.com and then you'll see the link for free books and you can download the volumes and read usually 10 chapters each class, but here we happen to have 14. And then when you come to class, you'll have more questions perhaps because you've had time to think about the actual chapters. And you'll have the words of the Buddha. You have the reference back to the original source text of the Pali Canon. And then you have teachings from me to help you further explore what it is that the Buddha is sharing with you. And some students read before and or after class, but sometimes students just don't have the time to read or they're not able to prioritize it in their week. So you're welcome to just come to class and study with us as well. That's an option. But if you're reading, you'll get a lot more benefit because you're going to see the words of the Buddha and the guidance that I'm providing since I can't go into that deep detailed guidance in the class classes that I do in the books. So the combination of the classes in the books will really help you. So Marcy has volunteered to read this first chapter of chapter 21. So I'll just go ahead and turn it over to her. And then anyone else in Zoom, if you guys would like to read any of the chapters, you're welcome to. Just raise your hand electronically and let me know that you're interested in reading. And then I can call on you for the future chapters. All right. So over to you, Marcy. Okay. Chapter 21. Breathing mindfulness meditation, well-established, annoying thoughts and impulses don't exist. Remain focused, monks, on foulness in the body. Have mindfulness of in and out breathing, well-established in front of you. Remain focused on inconsistencies of all untruths. 
for one who remains focused on the foulness of the body, the obsession with passion for the property of beauty is abandoned. For one who has mindfulness of in and out breathing well established in front of oneself, annoying thoughts and pulses do not exist. For one who remains focused on inconsistencies of inconsistencies, all untruths, ignorance, unknowing of true reality is abandoned. Clear, clear wisdom rises. Foulness, focusing on foulness in the body, mindful of in and out breathing, seeing, seeing the stilling of all untruths, dedicate all, dedicated always. He is a monk who sees clearly. From that he is there liberated, for that he is liberated, a master of direct knowledge, experience, at peace. He is a wise one gone beyond bondage. Okay, thank you, Marcy. So this book is titled Breathing Mindfulness Meditation, and we've been studying various discourses by the Buddha on breathing mindfulness meditation. He's been talking about the benefits. He's been explaining how to do breathing mindfulness meditation. This is a primary training that the Buddha taught in order to train the mind to get to enlightenment. And there's other things that an individual would need besides just meditation to get to enlightenment. But of course, this is a very important priority in terms of your journey to enlightenment and developing this practice is very wise. So here the Buddha is going through a few things that will help you to understand various aspects of your practice. So here he says, remain focused monks on foulness in the body. Here, this is a meditation to eliminate sexual craving. If you have sexual craving and you're interested in bringing that down or actually eliminating it 100%, there's a meditation to help you to be able to do that. And there's this meditation to meditate on the unattractiveness of the body. And if you're ever interested in learning that, it's in volume one, chapter 11. There's also classes where I've taught it and you can also talk with me privately and I will help you to learn how to do this meditation. So here he's saying, have mindfulness of in and out breathing well established in front of you. Remain focused on the inconsistency of all untruths. What you're doing on this path to enlightenment is yes, you're developing your meditation practice and having this awareness of mind and being focused on the in and out breath as you're meditating. But he also teaches all throughout your day, you should not cling to any perceptions, anything that your mind looks out at the world and it seems to be true. This is like your views and opinions of the way things seem around you. The mind can cling to these and think that certain things are true and then you make certain decisions that end up impacting you later. So it's important to remain focused on the inconsistency of all untruths, meaning always search out the truth and look for the truth. So when you're making decisions, you're basing your decisions on actual truths. And that relates to the teachings of the Buddha as well. This is why I guide students to learn, to reflect, which is independently verifying the teachings and to practice them so that you can get to wisdom. If you just believe your way through the teachings of the Buddha, you won't get to enlightenment. Belief doesn't lead to enlightenment. You need to get to the point where the mind is unshakable, where it's steady and stable. And the way that you do that is getting to wisdom. When you have belief, you don't know what's true or false, or when there's certain things going on in your life, if you're clinging to your perceptions, you don't know what's true or false, it's very easy for your mind to get shaken up when you realize that the perceptions you've been clinging to are actually untrue. So by you not clinging to your perceptions and by you seeking out the truth, then your mind can be stable and steady and it won't get shaken up. 
And then he says here, for one who remains focused on foulness of the body, the obsession with passion for the property of beauty is abandoned. So if you're noticing that you have this obsession with looking beautiful or handsome or appearing a certain way, by you understanding the body is having a certain amount of unattractiveness to it, which we typically don't see that in the unenlightened state. We kind of see the human body as being attractive. That's why we are interested in having things like sexual contact, that we see this outer layer of skin, we see the hair, we see the clothing, we see the makeup, the jewelry, other things that we do like colognes and perfumes, things like this to beautify the body. This is to have someone be interested in having sexual contact. And this can lead to an obsession on your own self where you're trying to look a certain way in the world. Whereas if you develop this unattractiveness of the body, you can just know that you need to take care of the body and you need to maintain its health and you need to make wise decisions. But you're not doing that with obsession, which would be craving, desire, attachment. You're not interested in living there. But you're also not interested in living on the other side where you just don't take care of the body at all and it just kind of withers away and you're not eating well, you're not doing certain things that are gonna maintain your health. So you'd like to practice this middle way as it relates to caring for this physical body is that you make wise decisions to care for it, but you're not obsessed about your appearance, but you're also not doing things where you're just laying around and not caring about the body either and not taking care of certain things that need to be taken care of. Here the Buddha says in this next part, he says, one who has mindfulness, meaning developing breathing mindfulness meditation, and then as you're developing that well-established in front of you, annoying thoughts and impulses don't exist. This is where you understand the enlightened mind that it's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. An enlightened mind doesn't even experience a bad mood. All the pollution's been eliminated from the mind that there isn't even a bad mood anymore. So that's why he's saying that annoying thoughts and impulses don't exist in the mind that is well-developed with mindfulness and having done so with breathing mindfulness meditation. You don't even have the slightest little annoyance anymore. For one who remains focused on inconsistency of all untruths, ignorance, unknowing of true reality is abandoned. Clear wisdom arises. One who focuses on the inconsistency of all untruths, meaning that you're working towards wisdom, that you're not clinging to perceptions, you're always looking for the truth and true reality in the world, you can abandon this ignorance or unknowing of true reality. This is where the mind just doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. This is the biggest hindrance to one's enlightenment is things like the Four Noble Truths. The mind is unaware of this. It has this unknowing of true reality. The mind thinks in the unenlightened state that other people are causing you to be angry or this situation is causing you to be angry. And there's many untruths that the mind is holding on to in the unenlightened state, and that's why it struggles and has difficulties. And that's why it has challenges where it gets shaken up because it doesn't have this clear wisdom. But when you work towards developing the truth in the mind and you see the truth about what's going on with your own mind and through these natural laws of existence that the Buddha shares, you're not believing his teachings, but you're working to acquire wisdom, then this clear wisdom arises in the mind and you can get to the point where the mind's steady and stable. It's unshakable. And then the Buddha once again kind of puts in here, focusing on foulness in the body, mindful of in and out breathing, seeing this stilling of all untruths, meaning that you don't allow the mind to believe anything at all. Dedicated always. This is the opposite of complacency. Any little unwholesome thought that arises in the mind, you need to apply 
right effort to cut that off and let it go. Right mindfulness is going to be able to help you be able to see those unwholesome thoughts arising, but being dedicated and diligent to your practice, not allowing complacency to set in when you see the unwholesomeness arising, you can cut that off and let it go. And then he says, he is a monk who's seen clearly. And then from that, he is there liberated. Liberation is enlightenment. That's where you get the freedom of strong feelings. You're not experiencing the anger, the sadness, the guilt, the shame, the boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, and all those other discontent feelings, even stress and anxiety. You can eliminate all of that. And this is part of what you need in order to be able to eliminate that. And having liberated the mind, the Buddha says, okay, this person is a master of direct knowledge or experience at peace. He is a wise one gone beyond bondage. Bondage is the unenlightened mind. It's bound up with these 10 fetters, these 10 individual pollutions in the mind. That's what's keeping the mind bound into this discontentedness and this unenlightened state, as well as that cycle of rebirth as well. But eliminating the 10 fetters, those 10 pollutions, now you're no longer bound up. The mind is secure from this bondage. So you're going to need the wisdom of the path to enlightenment of how to accomplish that. But having done the things that the Buddha is sharing here and others, that's where the mind ultimately is able to clear out all those cravings, desires, attachments through acquiring wisdom to eradicate that ignorance. And then that's where one can transform their mind and experience the peace and joy of the enlightened mind. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or in Zoom, and I'll be able to see those and answer your questions. Hello, everyone. I see you guys on YouTube saying hello. Hello, everyone. Nice to see you guys there. Let's see. I'm going to check Facebook and see if we have any questions coming in there. We don't see any questions anywhere on any of our platforms. So let's go ahead and move on to the next chapter. All right, Marcy, I think I'll go ahead and read this. That way you can take a break. We'll just kind of switch back and forth. And then, Francis, if you'd like to read at any point, feel free to let us know. This chapter 22 is titled Breathing Mindfulness Meditation, the Tathagata's Dwelling. So let me share with you guys that a Tathagata is the Buddha. This is the way that he referred to himself as the Tathagata. This is often translated as one who's discovered the truth or one who shares the truth. That's what we think that the word Tathagata actually means. So here the discourse is, monks, if wanderers of other communities ask you, in what dwelling, friends, did the perfectly enlightened one generally dwell during the rain's retreat? Being asked thus, you should answer those wanderers thus. During the rain's residence, friends, the perfectly enlightened one generally resided in the concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. Here, monks, mindful, I breathe in. Mindful, I breathe out. So this is all the guidance that the Buddha shares in terms of getting you ready for meditation and kind of what you should be doing during meditation. Not that you should be repeating these statements in your mind, but I consolidate all of this guidance as I guide students. But this is where that comes from. This is the support of why I guide students the way that I do. And we've read this in other classes and we're going to see this multiple times. So I'm just going to move through this. This is all the things that you'll see in other parts of the book. So then after he gets to the very last one where he says, I know reflecting on letting go, I will breathe in. I know reflecting on letting go, I will breathe out. If anyone monks speaking rightly could say of anything, 
It is a noble dwelling, an excellent dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling. It is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, that one could rightly say this. Monks, those monks who are trainees, who have not attained their mind's ideal, who dwell aspiring for the unsurpassed security from bondage or enlightenment. For them, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, leads to the destruction of the taints. Those monks who are arahants, whose taints are destroyed, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden, reached their own goal, completely destroyed the fetters of existence, those completely liberated through final knowledge, wisdom. From them, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, when developed and cultivated, leads to a peaceful dwelling in this very life and to the mindfulness in clear comprehension. If anyone, monks, speaking rightly, could say of anything, it is a noble dwelling, an excellent dwelling, the Tathagata's dwelling is of concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, that one could rightly say this. Okay, so let me give you guys a little bit of background here. The first part, the Buddha is talking about if wanderers of other communities. What he's talking about here is during his lifetime, he wasn't the only teacher that was sharing teachings that were claimed to be leading to enlightenment. The Buddhist teachings we know lead to enlightenment 100%. That's why they're still here 2,500 years later because they absolutely work and they lead exactly where he said they do. But during his lifetime, there were other teachers that were claiming that it was their teachings that led to enlightenment. And there were people studying with those teachers and doing various things that the Buddha knew didn't lead to enlightenment, but those people didn't necessarily know that. They were following those things. So occasionally, the Buddha and his students would come in contact with these other students of other teachers and even the teachers themselves. So here the Buddha is saying, if anybody from those other communities should wonder, essentially, you know, where did the Buddha reside during the rains retreat? What the rains retreat is, is during the lifetime of the Buddha 2,500 years ago, there weren't these well-defined roads and these well-defined sidewalks that we have now, these really close property lines. At one time, those things didn't really exist. So if you were traveling from one town to another, you would need to walk through people's property in order to go from one town to another. And a lot of people were farmers back then. And when it was raining, the ground would get very soft. And if people had planted crops and there were all these thousands and thousands of monks that the Buddha was teaching were traveling from one place to the other, they would destroy these crops and then the people wouldn't have the food that they need to sustain their life. So what he would teach is for three months out of the year during the rainy season that people would stay wherever they were, whether it was at a temple or at someone's village or in a house or what have you, they would just stay put for three months. And they continue to do this even today, that the ordained practitioners will stay at their home temple, so to speak. Right now, we're in that period of time, which is considered the rains retreat, where the ordained practitioners are staying inside their main temple and they won't travel. So nine months out of the year, they will travel around, they will do different things. And some temples now, they kind of make exceptions for that. But it's kind of a time to come back to your home temple for three months and learn from the master at that particular temple. So the rains retreat is an opportunity to stay put and basically work on developing your practice more closely than you might have all the rest of the year. So the Buddha is basically saying if anybody from any other 
teacher or any other students from these other communities should wonder where did I reside? Where did I stay for the rains retreat? Well, the Buddha is saying, I resided in breathing mindfulness meditation. That's where I, I resided. And he's saying that's a very peaceful existence or a very peaceful dwelling to dwell there. And then he gives guidance, of course, of how to actually do that meditation. And then he talks about how if somebody is training and they have not yet attained the mind's ideal, meaning they haven't attained this mental state of enlightenment, who dwell aspiring for the unsurpassed security from bondage, which is enlightenment. So if they're aspiring for enlightenment, for them, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, leads to the destruction of the taints. This is the pollution of mind, the defilements, the fetters. Those are the 10 things that are in the mind that are causing the mind to stay in the unenlightened state. So the Buddha is explaining how breathing mindfulness meditation leads to the elimination of all of those individual fetters because those fetters, the mind's holding on to it. It's clinging. These are mental objects that are in the mind. They're deeply rooted in the mind. So by you meditating and accumulating benefit over time, you're softening up the mind and getting more and more of that pollution out of the mind. So anything that's going on in your life whatever you're struggling with, maintaining a consistent breathing mindfulness meditation practice is going to help you to eradicate any struggles or difficulties that you're dealing with. And of course, practicing generosity as well, where you're training the mind to give and share more than is strictly required in any given situation without any expectation of anything in return. As you go around and practice generosity in various situations, you're training your mind to let go. So this can be very wise and very helpful in addition to the breathing mindfulness meditation. But here he's just focusing on the breathing mindfulness meditation because that's what we're focused on in these discourses. But in other places, he talks about the generosity. So be aware of that. And then he says, those monks who are arahants, during the lifetime of the Buddha, and even now we use this word arahant to refer to an enlightened being. An arahant is an individual who's eliminated all 10 fetters from the mind. So we call that person an arahant, or today we might just refer to them as an enlightened being. We also refer to it as arahantship, right? Like this is an individual who's working towards arahantship. They're working to eliminate the 10 fetters. So the Buddha is saying those monks who are arahants, so those monks who are enlightened, whose taints are destroyed, meaning they've eliminated all the 10 fetters, who have lived the holy life, done what had to be done, laid down the burden. Laying down the burden is to lay down craving, desire, attachment. Because as long as you have craving, desire, attachment in the mind, the mind's almost like a slave to these cravings. It's going to chase these cravings and thinking that somehow it's going to provide some kind of lasting satisfaction. But it's a real burden to carry around cravings because you just have to keep chasing, 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 chasing. So an individual who's eliminated the 10 fetters or the taints, they've destroyed those they've laid down the burden. They no longer have craving in the mind. They've reached their own goal, completely destroyed the fetters. Those completely liberated through final knowledge. This is when you attain enlightenment and your mind is now enlightened, you've attained final knowledge where you understand the complete path to enlightenment. You understand all the various aspects of the path to enlightenment. So we call that final knowledge. For them, concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, leads to a peaceful dwelling in this very life and to mindfulness and clear comprehension. So if you've eliminated the 10 fetters, 
you've been using breathing mindfulness meditation to do that, you've developed and cultivated the mind, it leads to this peaceful dwelling where you can meditate and your mind's peaceful and joyful. Your mind is stilled and quieted at any time as an enlightened being, you can start meditating and that peace will be there. Your peace will be there all day long, but if you're in meditation, it's almost like there's even more peace than just when you're in daily life. In daily life, an enlightened being is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. But when they're meditating, boy, is the mind super peaceful during that time. It's a dwelling almost where you could reside there permanently, indefinitely, but you need to kind of come out of meditation because there's other things you need to do in your life. But it's this peaceful dwelling in this very life that you could reside in permanently if you really could. But unfortunately, you got to break your meditation at some point, right? So then by clearing out the mind of these fetters, then the mind has this mindfulness or awareness of mind in this clear comprehension, that clarity of mind that I talk about, the focus, concentration, clarity of mind, and deep memory. And then he sums it up with saying, you know, someone could basically say that that's where the Buddha resided, in this peacefulness, in this calmness, in this mindfulness, awareness of mind, in this deep concentration and clarity of mind. That's the dwelling that the Buddha resided in for the rains retreat. So this is a way of reminding people how important meditation is. And the Buddha is going to talk about it in many different ways. Rather than just talking about the same old, same old, same old thing over and over and over again, he's going to adjust his discourses slightly and maybe even say something like this to kind of make it a bit interesting for somebody to understand. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Okay, so I'm not seeing any questions here. So Marcy, if you'd like to read this next one, this is chapter 23. Through breathing mindfulness meditation, no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. At Savata, ta, now on that occasion, the venerable Mahakapana is sitting not far from the perfectly enlightened one with his legs folded crosswise, holding his body straight Having set up mindfulness in front of him, the perfectly enlightened one saw him sitting nearby with his legs folded crosswise, his body straight, having set up mindfulness in front of him. Having seen him, he addressed the monks thus, Monks, do you see any shaking or trembling in this monk's body? Venerable sir, whenever we see the venerable one, whether he is sitting in the midst of the community or sitting alone in private, we never see any shaking or trembling in the venerable one's body. Monks, that monk gains its wit, gains at will, without trouble or difficulty, that concentration through the development and the cultivation of which one, of which no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. And what concentration is it through the development and cultivation of which no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. It is monks when concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing of mindfulness meditation has been developed and cultivated that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. And how monks is concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation developed and cultivated so that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. Here, monks, a monk, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, set up mindfulness in front of him, 
Just mindful he breathes in and mindful he breathes out. He trains thus, experiencing the whole body. Repeat as as at chapter one. He thus he trains thus, reflecting on letting go. I will breathe in. He trains thus, reflecting on letting go. I will breathe out. It is monks when concentration by mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation has developed and cultivated in this way that no shaking or trembling occurs in the body and no shaking or trembling occurs in the mind. All right. Thank you, Marcy. So one of the things that you might notice is that during meditation, you might notice your arms or legs kind of shake occasionally. This is impermanent. It's as the mind's letting go, you can have various shaking and things like this. You just bring the mind back to the breath and keep training to be in the present moment and back to the breath. But also in daily life, you might notice that your leg is bobbing up and down or you're tapping your fingers on the desk or something like that. If the mind is overactive, you'll see it in the body. The body will be overactive as well. There'll be this repetitive motion of clicking the fingers on the desk or bobbing the knee up and down or shaking the foot. These are things that are happening because the mind is overactive. But if the mind is tranquil, then the body will be tranquil as well because the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. So what you would like to do is train the mind with all these teachings, including breathing mindfulness meditation, to the point where you don't have that overactivity in the mind so that then the mind can be tranquil and the body can be tranquil. And the Buddha is explaining here that there's this individual amongst their community that has essentially accomplished that, where they're steady and stable. If the mind is steady and stable, you'll see that the body will be the same way. Questions on this one? Okay, I'm just going to look at our platforms here. All right, I'm not seeing anything here. So let's go to the next one, which is 24. The final in-breaths and out-breaths are known. Rahula, develop meditation on mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. When mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation is developed and cultivated, it is of great fruit and benefit. And how is mindfulness of breathing Breathing mindfulness meditation developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and benefit. This is repeated from what we've been seeing all along. So then we'll just skip over down here. Rahula, that is how mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation is developed and cultivated so that it is of great fruit and benefit with mindfulness of breathing. Breathing mindfulness meditation is developed and cultivated in this way. Even the final in-breaths and out-breaths are known as they cease, not unknown. So what the Buddha is describing here is that if you cultivate in your meditation this awareness of the in-breaths and out-breaths, that by the time you get to the point of death where you're taking your very last in-breath and your very last out-breath, you will know that it's your very last in-breath and out-breath. The Buddha understood this as part of his life. He knew he was going to die three months before. He was letting his students know about that three months in advance. That's how awake, that's how enlightened he was, that he was able to know the future in some situations before it occurred. So he let people know three months before he was going to die so that people would know. And if they had any last questions, they could ask him. And then he even knew his last breath because he delivered his very last teaching and his last words, and then he lay down and essentially died. So he's describing that you can be so aware of the mind and so aware of the breath that you'll know your final in-breaths and out-breaths. And this can actually help you to get to the point where you're eliminating fear of death. There's other teachings as well that help you eliminate the fear of death because an enlightened being isn't afraid of anything, including death. So you'll need to get to the point where you're not afraid of death and you don't have any fear of death. So 
understanding this development of the mind through breathing mindfulness meditation and developing and cultivating the mind, being aware of the breath and knowing that you'll be able to understand your final in-breath and out-breath can be part of helping you to eliminate your fear of death, but there's other things you'll need to do as well. And then of course the Buddha gives this whole long description of how to do meditation, which is what's being repeated in these discourses over and over. And I usually just like to point out that the Buddha is talking to his son here. This individual Rahula is his son. A lot of times people think that he left his family and he never came back, but instead he actually came back to the area where he was, his son, his wife, his mother, who was essentially his stepmother, his aunt, his cousins, his brother-in-laws, different people ordained with him and they all got to enlightenment because he knew how to get to enlightenment. That's the Buddha's wisdom. He knows how to guide people to enlightenment. So he didn't just you know, leave and never come back. He actually ended up spending time around his family and they were training with him and were able to get to enlightenment. So him leaving for six years to go off and discover this wisdom ultimately helped his family and helped the entire world by having this wisdom in the world. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. You guys know how to do that. Put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, and then I'll see them. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's go on to chapter 25. Would you like me to read, Teacher David? Sure, go for it, Marcy. One who perceives as non-self eradicates the conceit, I am. When monks, a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will will be virtuous, practicing moral conduct, one who resides restrained by the training guidelines possessed of wholesome conduct and resolving difficult situations, seeing danger in the slightest faults, having undertaken the training guidelines, will train in them. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it is predicted of him that he will go, that he will get to hear at will without trouble or difficulty. Talk concerned with the holy life that is conducive to opening up the heart. That is, talk on elimination of desire, on contentment, on solitude, on not getting bound up with others, on arousing energy, on virtuous behavior, on concentration, on wisdom, on liberation, on the wisdom and, and vision of liberation. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will arise, arouse energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities and acquiring wholesome qualities. He is strong, firm in effort, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will be wise, possessing the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. Having based himself on these five things, the monk should develop further another four things. Perception of unattractiveness of the body should be developed to abandon lust. Love and kindness should be developed to abandon ill will. Mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation should be developed to cut off thoughts. The perception of impermanence should be developed to eradicate the conceit I am. When one perceives impermanence, the perception of non-self is stabilized. 
one who perceives non-self, eradicates the conceit, I am, which is Nibbana, enlightenment in this very life. All right. Thank you, Marcy. So here, this is where the Buddha is talking about developing wholesome friends, companions, and comrades. Because if you develop wholesome people around you, your mind will have a tendency to be influenced by that wholesomeness. Whereas if you have unwholesome individuals around you, you'll tend to conform to do those things as well. And if you're going to cultivate wholesome friends and associates around you, you would like to do that without judgment. You're not judging people. You're not putting yourself up high and talking down to people or looking down on others. But instead, you're practicing discernment or wise decision making, where the more you understand the natural law of gamma of cause and effect or action and result, and you build this wisdom around things like the five precepts and you know, the Eightfold Path and things like this, like right intention, right speech, right action, you start developing the ability to make wise decisions about who to include in your life. So for example, if you have people that are killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, lying, or taking substances that cause heedlessness around you, your mind will have a tendency to be influenced by this. Or if you understand the Eightfold Path with right view, if you have people around you who are constantly blaming you for the difficulties that they're experiencing, you know that that's not true. But if you continue to reside around those types of people, it's going to be difficult and challenging for you to really establish right view. So you would like to make wise decisions based on wisdom about who to involve in your life. And you're not going to be able to involve everybody in your life is enlightened. You're going to need to be able to make wise decisions about who to include in your life. And then where you see that there are certain challenges and relationships that you're having, you can learn from that. You know, I never think of any relationship that ends as a failure or anything like that, because each one of the relationships that we have, we learn something from it. It exposes something about our mind to us so that we can then take action to resolve it. So we can think about like ex-girlfriends, ex-boyfriends, ex-friends. We can think of them as like teachers, maybe with a little T, maybe not a big T. Maybe you have other teachers who are like these big T's in your life. But they can be like little T's where you're learning from these individuals, maybe not directly, but there may be triggering certain cravings that are in your mind that you didn't know that was there. And you can be appreciative and have gratitude that these individuals were in your life. And then be sure to do that inner work to look at how to improve your mind so that you can then move beyond it. And the Buddha is describing here that as you're essentially developing friendship with people who are into practicing virtuous moral conduct or practicing the wholesome moral conduct, that then when you understand the training in the teachings that he shares about the natural law of gamma, of things like the five precepts and the Eightfold Path, that then you'll be able to see the danger in the slightest faults, that your mind will be able to be restrained because you'll be able to understand that if I go down this path, that there's going to be harmful things that are occurring in my life based on not having the choices that are based in wisdom, but instead making unwise decisions about my moral conduct, this is going to lead to harmful results in my life. So here the Buddha is talking about seeing the danger in the slightest faults, because as you get closer and closer to enlightenment, your gamma is going to be coming back to you really quick. If you do something unwise, you're going to see that result coming back to you really quick. And that's actually a really good thing because you can see the gamma so closely. And the natural law of gamma is the most unbiased teacher. It's going to show you where you're having challenges and you haven't made wise decisions. 
And then ultimately, he's talking about a whole bunch of different things here that I'm pleased to go into detail. In fact, at the temple this morning, the students had a lot of question on these things, like not getting bound up with others. What does that mean? And other things like this. Uh, there were some questions around what does it mean to possess the wisdom that discerns the arising and passing away. So if you guys have those kind of questions, let me know and I will answer them for you. Ultimately, the Buddha gets to this teaching where he's sharing the four different types of meditation that an individual would need to develop and cultivate in order to train the mind to get to enlightenment. And these are the four meditations that I teach as well. The first one is the meditation to eliminate sexual cravings. The second one is the meditation to eliminate anger, hatred, and ill will, which is loving kindness. The third one is the breathing mindfulness meditation that helps you to develop the ability to cut off thoughts. And you're doing that in meditation, but then you actually can use those qualities in daily life where you have mindfulness or awareness of mind, concentration, and the ability to easily cut off and let go of any thoughts. And then there's this meditation to develop the perception of impermanence. I refer to this as the meditation to realize non-self. And you can see why I refer to it that way, because you're developing the perception of non-self and you're eradicating the ego in the conceits in this I am. So the more you understand about personal existence view and that fetter, then you understand that you need to apply effort to eradicate that from the mind. And the Buddha is saying this is enlightenment in this very life because oftentimes the conceit is one of the last fetters to actually go. Of course, ignorance is the ultimately the last fetter that needs to be eliminated. But conceit is one that's kind of one of those last ones that are in there typically as well. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Let me know. I see some questions coming in. Let's see. So we have a question coming in here from Francis on Zoom. Could Teacher David clarify the meaning of conceit? So what conceit is, is it's a higher fetter. It's the eighth fetter. So it's a pollution. It's a taint. It's a defilement of the mind. What conceit is, is this is arrogance, pride, boastfulness. This is where the mind will judge others and try to put yourself above others or below others and comparing and measuring and comparing to see if you're above others or below others. And this is detrimental to the mind because if you have conceit, that arrogance, the pride, the boastfulness, the measuring and comparing, the judging others, then you're not going to be able to reside harmoniously with all beings around you. So you need to uproot that conceit out of the mind. And in volume one, chapter 16, I dedicate that chapter to helping you to dissolve the ego because conceit is part of the ego. So you're going to need to eliminate it in order to get to enlightenment and the personal existence view, which is the first fetter, and that eighth fetter, conceit, is what we call the ego. But that word didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha, so he describes it as personal existence view and conceit. And it's actually best to think of the ego in those ways because the symptoms associated with personal existence view and conceit are very different because they're different fetters. And the approach to eliminating them is different as well. So it actually helps to understand them separately. But just understand when we talk about ego nowadays, that's what we're talking about is mostly we're talking about conceit, but there's this personal existence view in there too that's part of the ego. Any other questions from you guys? Let's see, we have one here on YouTube. So should we strive to eliminate all sexual cravings? 
What if you are in a relationship? I want to understand better what is meant by this. So in order to get to enlightenment, an individual would ultimately need to eliminate sexual cravings and sexual contact. But when somebody gets to that point, it's up to each individual. We're all on our own independent journey to enlightenment. And if you're in a relationship, you're having sexual contact, and that's what you'd like to do, then that's your choice. That's your decision. For some people, they might come to the path when they're quite young, and they may have aspirations to have a partner or maybe have a family or something like that. So you can make your way all the way up to the first and second stage of enlightenment and have a really wonderful life where your discontentedness is significant diminished but you're still maintaining a sexual relationship and then at whatever point in time you decide that you would like to perhaps let go of sexual cravings if that's what you decide then you're able to do that but your mind won't actually be able to get to enlightenment where it's permanently peaceful calm serene and content with joy as long as there's craving for sexual contact because there'll be some situations where you can get it and you'll enjoy it and there'll be pleasure there but there's going to be situations where you can't get it and the mind's going to be discontent it's going to be irritated or agitated. So you're not going to be able to get to that permanent mental state of peace and joy as long as that craving for sex is in the mind. But you can do all the other work on the path to enlightenment and notice that you can get quite amount of peacefulness in the mind, but the mind's still holding on to that central desire, that sexual craving, that contact that it wants, and you're going to experience some discontentedness around that. Also, when you have sexual craving in the mind, it can heighten your other central desires and it can also mask and hide your other central desires as well because that sexual craving can be kind of strong and pretty high. So as you decide at some point, whenever somebody might decide to do that, if they decide to do it, to eliminate their sexual cravings, you'll start noticing these other cravings potentially that are in the mind that you can now start to eradicate as well. So that's why one is working to eliminate sexual craving if they choose and that's why this is an independent journey and everybody decides for themselves you know when is the right time for that or if they would like to do that oftentimes when we're young we think that you know at least i did i know i thought i'd be on my deathbed still having sex at least that's what i envisioned in my mind but as you get older and you've been there done that and you've experienced a certain amount of it you start to extinguish that craving but depending on where we are in life we might still have that craving and one of the things that we can do is to actually fulfill it and that's one of the ways to extinguish it is to actually fulfill it but you just have to be careful there because the mind can indulge in it to the point where it can get lost in those central desires. So great question there. All your guys' questions are really wonderful. Let's see, thank you, Teacher David, you're welcome. Nice to help you. Let's see, there's nothing in Facebook or Zoom, so let's move on to the next one, which I think it's my turn to read here, Marcy. We'll go ahead and scroll down. I'll read this one, chapter 26. Things that lead to the liberation of mind. I can't pronounce this person's name. I'll just call him student or her student. Student, when liberation of mind has not developed, five things lead to its development. What five? Here, student, a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades. When liberation of mind has not developed, this is the first thing that leads to its development. Two, again, a monk is virtuous, practicing moral conduct. He resides restrained by the training guidelines, possessed of wholesome conduct and determination, seeing danger in slightest faults. Having undertaken the training guidelines, he trains in them. When liberation of mind has not developed, 
This is the second thing that leads to its development. Three, again, a monk gets to hear at will, without trouble or difficulty, talk concerning with the holy life that is conducive to opening up the heart, that is, talk on elimination of desires, on contentment, on solitude, on getting bound up with others, on arousing energy, virtuous behavior, on concentration, on wisdom, on liberation, on the wisdom and vision of liberation. When liberation of mind has not developed, this is the third thing that leads to its development. Four, again, a monk has aroused energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities and acquiring wholesome qualities. He is strong, firm in effort, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. When liberation of mind has not developed, this is the fourth thing that leads to its development. Five, again, a monk is wise. He possesses the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. When liberation of mind has not developed, this is the fifth thing that leads to its development. When student, a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will be virtuous, practicing moral conduct. One who resides restrained by the training guidelines will train in them. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will get to hear at will, without trouble or difficulty, talk concerned with the holy life that is conducive to opening up the heart, that is, talk on elimination of desires, and then all that other stuff, on the wisdom and vision of liberation. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will arouse energy for abandoning unwholesome qualities and all that other stuff, not casting off the duty of cultivating wholesome qualities. When a monk has wholesome friends, wholesome companions, wholesome comrades, it can be predicted of him that he will be wise, possessing the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, which is noble and penetrative and leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. And now the last part of this is what we just read in that previous chapter. So let me focus in on a few things that we're seeing here that was also in the previous chapter too, but we can go ahead and penetrate into these and talk about them in more detail. Here, notice that an individual needs to be determined to develop wholesome moral conduct, that without determination and dedication and diligence, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. You're not going to just stumble your way into enlightenment. You're not going to just fall into enlightenment. There needs to be deliberate conscious decisions that lead to continuous development on the path to enlightenment. So determination, dedication, and diligence is really important as part of the path. Then hearing at will without trouble or difficulty, talk concerning the holy life, conducive to opening up the heart. That's what you're involved in right now. You're hearing talk concerning the holy life. You're learning about the teachings of the Buddha, and that's going to help what the Buddha describes as opening up the heart. There's people who talk about the mind as being inside the heart, which I think is a very warm, very loving way to think about the mind. There's people who talk about it as being, you know, in the head. You know, that's kind of a Western way to think about it. There's other cultures that talk about the mind as being outside the body. 
in reality, the mind is intangible. It's non-physical. You can't touch it. You can't point to where it is. So it doesn't really necessarily reside in any one particular place. But the way that the Buddha describes it, he talks about it as being in the heart, which I think is a wonderful way to think about the mind because, you know, we associate the heart with warmth and love and compassion and things like this, even generosity. So think about that you're opening up your mind, you're opening up your heart as you're learning and understanding the teachings of the Buddha. You're learning about the elimination of desires and how to develop this contentment in the mind, this peace and joy. On solitude, in order to get to enlightenment, you're going to need to learn how to be alone. Oftentimes, we fill up our life with friends and family and we're around people a lot. And, you know, we're going to the movies. We want somebody to come with us and we won't go unless someone else goes with us. Or we want to go out to eat and we only go to a restaurant if someone else comes with us. Or going to the mall or something like this. What you'll need to do is learn how to be alone and enjoy being with yourself, so to speak, being alone with this being. Because if you enjoy being with yourself, then other people enjoy being with you. If you don't enjoy spending time with yourself, being alone, why would anybody ever enjoy spending time with you? So you're going to need to learn to be alone because as you eliminate more and more of the pollution of mind, you're going to notice that you need to sleep less and less and you're going to be spending more and more time awake. This is one of the reasons why enlightened beings can be so productive and so successful in life because it's like getting an extra day of time that you, you know, will be productive in a gradual sense for maybe 16 hours of your day. Of course, you're going to rest and relax and have fun and things like this, but you're never going to be making unwise decisions as an enlightened being that are going to lead to unwholesome results. And if you're learning to be alone, this is really good because there's going to be times where you wake up or you're falling asleep really late and there's not other people around. And if you're lonely and bored and feeling like you're missing people. This is just because the mind has certain cravings, desires, attachments. So you're going to need to learn how to be alone. So I suggest people take their self out on dates. Go to the movies by yourself. Go to restaurants and eat alone. Go to the mall and walk around by yourself and do some shopping and just enjoy being with yourself and thinking about all the things that you need to think about and sorting out the things in your mind. This is oftentimes why we spend so much time around other people because we're sometimes afraid of our own thoughts. But you're going to need to confront those thoughts. So by being alone, you can discover those thoughts and then start to enjoy that alone time. And then also, if you can train your mind to really enjoy being alone, when you're with other people, it's just a bonus. It's just like wonderful. I'm with other people. But when you're not with other people, that'll be wonderful too. So learning to be alone is really important. And then the Buddha talks here about getting bound up with others. This is like if you were at work and maybe you went to go get some water at the water cooler and there are people standing around gossiping and slandering people. If you joined in in that gossip and slander, you're getting bound up with others and you're not interested in getting bound up with others. That other people in the world are going to be doing countless things that are unwise and unwholesome. And if you get bound up and conform to what other people are doing, you're not going to be able to get to enlightenment. You need to rise above and beyond the things that people are doing in the world. Like it's kind of common in some cultures, maybe Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, people go out drinking and go to bars and doing different things. Well, if you get bound up with others, you're going to continue to do those things and you're going to essentially fall to the wayside. You're going to find yourself making unwise decisions. So at some point, you're going to need to decide like, okay, 
I'm more interested in this peace and this joy of the enlightened mind than conforming to what other people are doing. I'm not interested in slandering or gossiping because you'll have seen the truth that when you do those things, then people do those things about you too, that it's very unwise to do that. So arouse this energy for virtuous behavior on concentration, wisdom, liberation of mind. That's what you're interested in doing is arising this motivation, this encouragement, this enthusiasm, this initiative, this ambition to go forward and develop the mind in this wholesome way to develop concentration and wisdom and how to actually get the mind to be liberated so that you can see clearly. When you see the Buddha talking about wisdom and vision, that wisdom of the natural laws of existence is what you're learning on the path then you're reflecting independently verifying your practicing. And this gives you the clear vision of what the path to enlightenment is and how to actually liberate the mind. And then of course, that energy needs to not only be there to cultivate wholesome qualities, but to abandon the unwholesome qualities as well. And then this wisdom that discerns arising and passing away, what he's talking about there is wisdom of the universal truth of impermanence. That's usually the first thing that a student's learning with me as part of their journey on the path to enlightenment is understanding the universal truth of impermanence. Without that, you wouldn't really be able to make any progress on the path because the mind's craving permanence. That's the whole underlying problem. So you need to understand the universal truth of impermanence, which is the wisdom that discerns arising and passing away. This is things arise, change, and fade away. These are conditioned objects. So you would need to understand that because that's what leads to the complete destruction of discontentedness. And I really take time in our foundational programs to make sure people understand the universal truth of impermanence because that's what they need in order to eliminate the discontentedness. And then the Buddha is essentially summarizing all those things that he's already shared and then saying, okay, now that you've developed those five things, now there's another four things that you need to develop. So develop those five things first, and then as you're doing that, develop these four as well. And then we talked about these in the last chapter. Let me know what questions you guys have here. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter, which is chapter 27. 10 perceptions for curing of an affliction. If, Ananda, you visit the monk, Garamanada, and speak to him about 10 perceptions, it is possible that on hearing about them, his sickness will immediately subside. What are the 10? The perception of impermanence, the perception of non-self, the perception of unattractiveness of the body, the perception of danger, the perception of abandoning, the perception of freedom from strong feelings, the perception of elimination, the perception of non-delight in the entire world, the perception of impermanence on all conditions, conditioned mental objects, and mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. And what, Ananda, is the perception of impermanence? Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, a monk reflects thus, form is impermanent, Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are, choices, decisions are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. Thus, he resides reflecting on impermanence and these five aggregate subjects to clinging. This is called the perception of impermanence. And what, Ananda, is a perception of non-self? Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, a monk reflects thus. The I is non-self. Forms are non-self. 
the ear is non-self, the sound is non-self, the nose is non-self, odors are non-self, the tongue is non-self, flavor is non-self, the body is non-self, physical objects are non-self, the mind is non-self, mental objects are non-self. Thus he resides reflecting on non-self in these six exter internal and external sense bases. This is called perception of non-self. And what Ananda is perception of unattractiveness of the body. Here, a monk reviews this very body upward from the soles of the feet and downward from the tips of the hairs, enclosed in skin, as full of many kinds of impurities. There are in this body hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, plural, spleen, lung, intestines, mensetchery, sorry, I can't say that, stomach, excursement, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, fluid of joints, urine, thus resides reflecting on unattractiveness of this body. This is called perception of unattractiveness of this body. And what monks is perception of danger? Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of the tree, or to an empty hut, a monk reflects, this body is a source of much pain and danger. For all sorts of afflictions arise in this body, that is, eye disease, disease of the inner ear, nose disease, tongue disease, body disease, head disease, disease of external ear, mouth disease, tooth disease, cough, asthma, katahara, pyrex, fever, stomach ache, fainting, dysentery, dysentery, rips, flora, <laughs> lipose, boils, eczema, tuberculosis, epilepsy, ringworm, itch, scab, chicken pox, scabies, hemorrhage, diabetes, hemorrhoids, cancer, fistulous illness originating from bile, phlegm, wind, or other combination, illness produced by changing of climate, illness produced by careless behavior, illness produced by assault, or illness produced as a result of unwholesome karma, a cold heat, hunger, thirst, defecation, urination, thus it resides reflecting on danger in this body. This is called perception of danger. And what Ananda is the perception of a band? Here, a monk decides not tolerate an unarisen sensual thought. He abandons it, dispels it, terminates it, obliviates it. He does not tolerate an arisen thought of ill will, arisen thought of harm. Evil, unwholesome states, whenever they arise, he abandons them, dispels them, terminates them, and obliterates them. This is called perception of abandonment. And what monks, and what Ananda, is the perception of freedom from strong feelings. Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree, or to an empty hut, a mind reflects thus, this is peaceful, this is superb, this is the ceiling of mind activities, and letting go of all greed, the destruction of craving, freedom from strong feelings, nibbana, enlightenment. This is called perception of freedom from strong feelings. And what Ananda is perception of elimination. Here, having gone to the forest, to the foot of a tree or an empty hut, a monk reflects thus, this is peaceful, this is superb. That is, the sealing of mind activities, the letting go of all greed, the destruction of craving, elimination, nibbana, enlightenment. This is called the perception of elimination. And what Ananda is the perception of non-excitement in the entire world. 
Here, a monk refrains from any engagement in clinging, mental standpoints, adherence, and underlying tendencies in regard to the world, abandoning them without clinging to them. This is called the perception of non-excitement in the entire world. And what Ananda is a perception of impermanence in all conditioned mental objects. Here, a monk repels, unenthusiastic and disinterested by all conditioned mental objects. This is called the perception of impermanence in all conditioned mental objects. And what Ananda is mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. Here, a monk having gone to the forest, to the foot of the tree, to an empty hut, sits down having folded his legs crosswise, straightened his body, and established mindfulness in front of him. Just mindful he breathes in, and mindful he breathes out. So this... Breathing in long, he knows, I breathe in long. Breathing out long, he knows, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he knows, I breathe out short. You want me to start? <laughs> yeah, we can just go right through that. Yeah. Okay. If, Ananda, you visit monk Rimma Mahanda and speak to him about these ten perceptions. It is possible that on hearing about them, he will immediately recover from his sickness. Then, when the Venerable Ananda had learned these ten perceptions from the perfectly enlightened one, he went to the Venerable Gimbara Mahanda and spoke to him about them. When the Venerable G heard about these ten perceptions, his sickness immediately subsided. The Venerable G discovered that, discovered, the Venerable G recovered from that sickness and that is how he was cured of his sickness. Perfect. Thanks, Marcy. So I just skip over these words because it's something that is really long and we've read it multiple times as part of this book. So the Buddha's words, of course, are all very important, but we can skip over some just for time's sake. So thank you for reading this. There's 10 perceptions or 10 understandings, 10 developments of certain wisdom of what you need to cultivate in the mind to be able to understand these various things that he's talking about. And he's going into these 10 individual things that an individual would need to develop and understand. And what he's sharing is that understanding these things, it cured this person's affliction or this sickness. Whether it accomplishes that or not, you'd need to test that on your own. But here it's important that you understand each of these 10 because this is what's gonna lead to your enlightenment among other things is to understand these 10. So rather than to go through all 10 of them, I'm going to go to just one of them and kind of explain because it's one that usually raises questions. But then any of the other ones that you would like to talk about, just let me know and we can talk about them and I will help you to understand them. The one that typically students ask questions about is number eight. And what Ananda is the perception of non-excitement in the entire world? Here the Buddha is saying, Monks refrain from any engagement in clinging, mental standpoints, adherences, and underlying tendencies in regard to the world, abandoning them without clinging to them. So it's not that you're not enjoying things in the world. It's that you understand that there's nothing in this external world that's going to provide any kind of lasting, pleasurable feelings. Because as soon as you base your inner feelings on something like the sun or a new pair of shoes or a new job or a new friend or a new boyfriend, as soon as you allow the mind to get those conditioned, pleasant feelings when these things are occurring, 
it's only a matter of time before the painful feelings come about because the mind is craving and clinging and experiencing conditioned pleasant feelings based on some condition when that condition changes the mind's going to end up in the other side of that which is the painful feelings so eventually you get to the point where your mind is enjoying the things that you're doing in life you can enjoy things without having conditioned pleasant feelings but you start to understand that there isn't anything in the world that it's worthy for your mind to really get these excited feelings about because if you do, it's only a matter of time before the mind ends up in the painful feelings. So it's really challenging for the mind to realize you gotta let go of this temporary happiness, this temporary excitement in order to get to this permanent joy or this permanent happiness, these unconditioned mental qualities of the joy that comes into the mind. And here specifically, he's talking about clinging to mental standpoints, adherences, and underlining tendencies. This is where if you have certain perceptions about the world, maybe political views or certain opinions or views about the world, if you cling to those things, you'll most likely find yourself in an argument with somebody trying to defend your opinions and views. And this is just going to lead to arguments and difficulties. It's going to lead to speech that puts division between you and other people. So you would like to get to the point where it doesn't make sense to cling to any opinions and views and any of these adherences or underlying tendencies in regard to the world. If somebody else thinks that one politician is great and everybody else is terrible, okay, so be it. That's their choice. That's their opinion and their view. Your goal in life isn't to convince everybody to support the same politicians as you or to be involved in the same hobbies or activities as you. Everybody has their own life. Everybody has their own choices and decisions that they're making. And being able to respect that and step away and not cling to your own thoughts and your own things that are going on in your mind that will help you to reside more harmoniously with all people because you're not going to be in there advocating aggressively with one thing or another. You're just sharing your views and opinions with other people and letting different people to ask you questions perhaps about certain things that you have thoughts about or certain opinions or views that you have thoughts about. So let me know what questions you guys might have related to any of these 10. We can go into any of the 10. I just thought I would share that one with you because that particular one tends to draw some questions. So let me know what questions you guys have. Okay, so it looks like uh, Francis is asking, what are mental objects? Are these referring to the five hindrances? So the five hindrances are mental objects, but more closely, it's the 10 fetters, which four of the five hindrances are actually fetters. So all of those things are mental objects. What a mental object is, is it's a deeply rooted container in the mind, as we talk about the 10 fetters, that is deeply rooted in the mind, something like central desire or ill will or conceit, all of these and others that are the 10 fetters, those are mental objects. But also we use this word mental object kind of in a lighter way as well. Most often we refer to mental objects as these deeply rooted containers like the fetters, these pollutions that need to be uprooted and eliminated from the mind. But you could also think of a mental object as really any thought or any feeling or anything that's coming into the mind. So here when the Buddha is talking about eliminating the mental objects, I think is what he's talking about here. Uh, let me find which one that is that he's talking about mental objects. Here it is. 
So when he's talking about the perception of impermanence and all conditioned mental objects. So yes, those fetters are all impermanent. You would need to know that, right? But then even just like individual thoughts of unwholesomeness, those can be in this context described as a mental object, like a thought. So understanding that any kind of thoughts or feeling that's coming through the mind, these are things are all impermanent and you can cut them off and let them go if you understand that they're conditioned objects and that you can apply effort and dedication and diligence to cutting those off and eliminating them from the mind as there's unwholesome thoughts. If there's wholesome thoughts in the mind in daily life, then support those, encourage those, don't allow those to fade. So in most situations where we're using mental objects to refer to those deeply rooted containers, but in rare situations like this, you can see that it's really related to any kind of thought or, or feeling or anything like that. All right, so let's see if we have any questions here on any of our other platforms. I'm not seeing anything there. So we'll move to this next chapter, which it's my turn to read, which is chapter 28. This is titled Five Things to Penetrate to the Unshakable. And there's going to be three discourses here. Monks, possessing five things, a monk pursuing mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, in no long time penetrates to the unshakable. What he's talking about about the unshakable is the enlightened mental state. By the time you get to enlightenment, the mind is unshakable. It's steady. It's calm. There's nothing that can shake up the enlightened mind. Even if you had children and your child got murdered, you wouldn't experience the mind being shaken up. You would still love your child. You would still have gratitude and appreciation, but you would understand impermanence and these things occur, that you wouldn't aspire for your child to be murdered. It's not love that's causing the mind to be discontent at the time of death. It's the craving, desire, attachment. So by the time the mind has been liberated of all craving, desire, attachments, it's unshakable. It doesn't matter what's happening in the world. Nothing will shake up the mind. So here the Buddha is going to give you five things that one would need to develop along with breathing mindfulness meditation to get to this enlightened mental state where the mind is unshakable. What five? One, here a monk has few undertakings, few tasks. It is easy to support and is easily contented with the necessities of life. Two, he eats little and is intent on moderation regarding food. Three, he is rarely drowsy and is intent on alertness. Four, he has learned much, remembers what he has learned, and cultivates what he has learned. Those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing, which proclaim the perfectly complete and pure spiritual life. Such teachings as these he has learned much of, retained in mind, recited verbally, mentally investigated, and penetrated well by view. 5. He reviews the extent to which his mind is liberated. Possessing these five things, a monk pursuing mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation, in no long time penetrates to the unshakable. This second discourse is exactly the same, except number four changes. So I will read number four. He gets to hear at will, without trouble or difficulty, talk concern with the holy life that is conducive to opening up the heart, that is, talk on elimination of desires, on contentment, on solitude, on not getting bound up with others, on arousing energy, on virtuous behavior, 
on concentration, on wisdom, on liberation, on the wisdom and vision of liberation. Then same thing here. It's just number four that changes. Number four is he is a forest dweller who resorts to remote lodgings. So here the Buddha is essentially giving you seven things, the original five and then two additional. This is kind of common in the Buddhist teachings where he might say, okay, there's these five things to penetrate to the unshakable. And he says it in one way in one discourse, and then he changes it slightly in another one, and he changes it slightly in another one. So in each discourse, he's not just giving you the only five. He's giving you five that he's sharing at that particular time. And then what you're doing is you're putting them together to understand what are the ones that you really need to develop in order to develop the mind to this enlightened mental state. So that's what's really great about this book series is it's consolidating these teachings in one place where you can see that very clearly. Because oftentimes these teachings are spread out amongst different volumes of books and you're not seeing them all at one time like this book series is doing for you. So here we've talked about some of these, but let's just go through them. This first one is if your mind is unenlightened and you have craving, desire, attachment, oftentimes the mind is just go, 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 go throughout your day. You might attend 20, 30 different things on your list and you're just go, 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 go throughout your day. And the reason why is the unenlightened mind is getting those pleasant feelings whenever it accomplishes one of its cravings or one of the things that it's trying to accomplish, it feels these happiness, this excitement, this elation. So oftentimes an individual might fill up their list with a lot of different things for their day and now they're just racing through their list trying to get all these things accomplished rather than just taking things slow and gradual and having few undertakings and few tasks. That's what an enlightened being is going to essentially be able to do, that they're not just going to race around and try to complete 10, 20, 30 different things in a day. They're going to just gradually, slowly, consistently work through a few tasks that they might need to handle in a given day, realizing that they can't accomplish everything in one day. This way, if you only have a few things and something occurs and you need to kind of go off where you were thinking, then you can kind of go off, right? So one of the examples that I gave this morning at the temple is that oftentimes, you know, I only have maybe two, three, maybe four at most things that I'm actually working to accomplish in a given day. So maybe like the other day, I went to the store to purchase a bunch of cleaning supplies for the temple and I took them to the temple and I was putting them away in the different storage rooms and hanging up signs and things like this. Well, if I had like a whole list of 10, 20, 30 things to do and some student happened to stop by the temple, the mind might have just been racing to try to accomplish all those things rather than residing in the present moment and realizing, you know what, I can put this putting away the cleaning supplies on hold and let me just talk with the student. The student has come to the temple to be able to learn and ask questions. Let me just sit down and talk with them. Whereas if you have craving, oftentimes you overlook certain things like that. You can't just breathe and can't just exist in the present moment. And also the mind isn't oftentimes uh, satisfied with just the basic necessities to sustain life where all we really truly need is food, water, clothing, shelter, and medical care. But oftentimes in the unenlightened state, the mind wants this and it wants that and it wants this and it wants that. It can't be peaceful and contented unless it has all these different things. So no matter what's going on in your life, if you can think about, you know what, I've got food, I've got water, I've got clothing, I've got shelter, and I've got medical care. 
I can't sustain my life. No matter how much your mind is shaken up with whatever's going on around you, you can focus on those five basic necessities and just find contentedness with those five basic necessities. Number two here is the Buddha teaches to eat in moderation. He only ate once a day during his lifetime. And this is there for a reason that the monks tend to eat this way is that it helps them to eliminate central desire where you're not eating based on emotion. You can actually accomplish the same thing without eating once a day, but eating once a day will surely help you in that regard. Nowadays, a lot of the ordained practitioners are eating twice a day because some people say the caloric value of food is a lot more reduced now than during the lifetime of the Buddha because the soil and the water and the environment was more pure during that time. So a broccoli had more caloric value than maybe a broccoli today. But nonetheless, uh, as a household practitioner, you might need to eat two, three, four, five times a day, but you would like to eat in moderation where you're just eating you know, kind of a basic amount of food where you're not gorging and putting all this stress on the body to have to digest all that food. And then it's also very expensive to chase after all that food and purchase all that food. But eating in moderation is that you're not eating based on emotion because sometimes if the mind is craving and you start feeling sad or lonely or bored, you might just start eating ice cream or cake just to try to get those pleasant feelings that the mind is longing and yearning for. So by eating in moderation, just kind of smaller portions, then you'll see that you're ensuring that you're only eating enough to sustain the health of the body. You're not gorging and eating based on emotion. The Buddha talks in other discourses where he shares that you should eat enough food to eliminate the hunger pains of any hunger pain that might exist in the body. No more and no less. And then he's talking here about an individual is rarely drowsy and intent on alertness, attentiveness of the mind. And then there's this certain amount of concentration or clarity, this deep memory to remember the teachings. During the lifetime of the Buddha, you had to remember all the teachings because nothing was written down. Nowadays, we have them written down so we can refer back to them. We have podcasts and videos and things like that that you can reference. But you do need to take on a certain amount of understanding of the teachings in the mind to be able to apply them. You wouldn't be able to kind of consult your book prior to every single conversation that you're going to have in the world. So you're going to need to remember a certain amount of the teachings. Early on, the mind can be somewhat polluted, and this can be challenging to have a certain memory. But as you're bringing your meditation practice up, the pollution is going down. So your ability to remember things is increasing more and more and more. This is why some people choose to take these programs that I teach more than one time, because the first time through, they're going to remember a certain amount of content. But the second or third time through, they're able to retain more and more details of what's being taught because their mind is in a better condition. And by remembering and retaining more of the teachings, you can then apply them in daily life more readily. And then this fifth one, he's talking about that he reviews the extent to which his mind is liberated. This is where you're very objective about your mind, that oftentimes the mind can overlook certain discontentedness and kind of push it to the side and just kind of keep on going through life. But instead, you need to analyze the mind. You need to look inward. You need to review the mind and see, is it agitated? Is it annoyed? Is it frustrated? Is it irritated? What are the cravings, desires, attachments that led to that? I call this analysis of the mind, that you analyze the mind for its cravings, desires, attachments. Here, the Buddha is referring to it as review the extent to which his mind is liberated. 
liberation is that peace and joy of the enlightened mind. But if you're experiencing any discontentedness, which are those conditioned feelings, you need to penetrate into that and use that as an indication that they're still craving in the mind and then uncover what those are so that you can eliminate them. Then here we have already talked about this one, which is number four. We've already talked about that in a previous discourse. And then here we even talked about this one. He is a forest dweller who resorts to remote lodgings. During the lifetime of the Buddha, people would go out into the forest and spend three months or six months or so all alone, just meditating. And of course, they would come out to get food and stuff like that. But this is the way they train their mind to be alone and train their mind to be comfortable. So this is where I was saying that training your mind to go to the movies or go out to dinner or go to the mall or go to a park or go on vacation by yourself. This can be a really wonderful way to help you train your mind to be alone. And here during the lifetime of the Buddha, they went out into the forest, but you can do these kinds of things even by just traveling alone for a couple of weeks and going on vacation or holiday alone. This is a great way to train your mind to be comfortable while being alone. Let me know what questions you guys have on any of these. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere. So I'm going to move on to the next chapter. It looks like Marcy disconnected, so I'll just go ahead and keep reading unless other people in Zoom would like to read. You're welcome to. So this chapter, number 29, the five hindrances that weaken wisdom. Monks, there are these five obstructions, hindrances, burdens of the mind, states that weaken wisdom. What five? One, central desire is an obstruction, a hindrance, a burden of the mind, a state that weakens wisdom. Two, ill will is an obstruction, a hindrance, a burden of the mind, a state that weakens wisdom. Three, complacency is an obstruction, a hindrance, a burden of the mind, a state that weakens wisdom. Four, restlessness and worry is an obstruction, a hindrance, a burden of the mind, a state that weakens wisdom. Five, doubt is an obstruction, a hindrance, a burden of the mind, a state that weakens wisdom. These are the five obstructions, hindrances, burdens of the mind, states that weaken wisdom. Monks, without having abandoned these five obstructions, hindrances, burdens of the mind, states that weaken wisdom, it is impossible that a monk with his ineffective and fragile wisdom might know his own wholesomeness, the wholesomeness of others, or the wholesomeness of both, or realize a superhuman distinction in wisdom and vision worthy of the noble ones. Suppose a river were flowing down from a mountain, traveling a long distance with a swift current, carrying along much trash. Then on both of its banks, a man would open irrigation channels. In such a case, the current in the middle of the river would be dispersed, spread out, and divided so that the river would no longer travel a long distance with a swift current carrying along much trash. So too, without having abandoned these five obstructions, hindrances, burdens of the mind, states that weaken wisdom, it is impossible that a monk with his ineffective and fragile wisdom might know his own wholesomeness, the wholesomeness of others, or the wholesomeness of both or might realize a superhuman distinction in wisdom and vision worthy of the noble ones. 
The followings are the reverse aspects of monks who are void of hindrances. These are the monks who penetrate ignorance, a knowing of true reality, through wisdom, just as a swift current of a river with irrigation channels closed on both of its banks could travel a long distance. So here the Buddha is introducing you to the five hindrances, which are the five things that are going to hinder you from experiencing enlightenment. And he's using a bit of an analogy here to help you understand that you don't have the ability to firmly move forward to enlightenment as these hindrances are there in the mind. And these are things that I teach in other classes where I go through and I teach what each individual hindrance is and then actually how to eliminate it. And these are also part of the fetters as well, except for number three, complacency is not part of the fetters, but that is also a hindrance. So each of these hindrances have certain description of what they are. There are certain symptoms that you'll see in the mind. Then there's a certain antidote and way to eliminate them. And then there's a way to determine that you have actually eliminated them. And this is part of the wisdom that you learn on the path to enlightenment. And while we're talking about the hindrances, the hindrance of all hindrances is ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. That's like the top line hindrance, because as long as you have ignorance, you're not going to be able to have wisdom of the five hindrances or wisdom of the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or things like that. So that's why you're always looking to cultivate wisdom. But these five things stand in your way of cultivating that wisdom. Let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter. We can talk about any of these five hindrances that you guys would like or you have questions about. If you're struggling with any of these and you need help to know how to overcome them, just let me know and I will help you. Because there's another chapter here that we're going to be talking about that the Buddha has the five hindrances in there as well. Number 30 here. The five hindrances are called obstacles, hindrances, coverings up, envelopings. This student's name it is just as if this river were full of water so that a crow could drink out of it and a man should come along wishing to cross over, to get to the other side, to get across and were to lie down on its bank, covering his head with a shawl. What do you think, student? Would that man be able to get to the other side? No, master teacher Gautama. In the same way, student, in the noble discipline, these five hindrances are called obstacles, hindrances, coverings up, envelopings. Which five? The hindrance of sensual desire, of ill will, of complacency, of restlessness and worry, of doubt. These five are called obstacles, hindrances, coverings up, envelopings. And these Brahmins learned in the three Vedas are caught up, confined and obstructed, entangled in these five hindrances but that such brahmins learned in the three vedas who persistently neglect what a brahmin should do and persistently do what a brahmin should not do and who are caught up confined in obstructed entangled in these five hindrances should attain after death at the breaking up of the body to union with Brahma or God, that is just not possible. 
Okay, so the Buddha is here once again talking about the five hindrances, and he's giving this analogy of a person laying on the side of a bank of a river trying to cross to the other side, but they just lay down and cover up their eyes with a piece of fabric. And he's saying essentially that, no, it's impossible for this person to cross to the other side because they're not doing what needs to be done in order to get to the other side of the bank. And he's saying the same thing is true if these hindrances are in the mind, you can't get to this enlightened mental state. You're going to need to eliminate these in order to get to enlightenment. And then he relates this to the Brahmin. The Brahmin are Hindu priests that existed during the lifetime of the Buddha, and they exist now as well. They were mainly doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. They were praying on behalf of the commoner. The common person would pay them money, and then they were supposed to pray on their behalf, and then this person's life was supposed to get better. But of course, the Buddha understood that this wasn't true, and other people knew as well. But the Brahmin, in addition to these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, they were also teaching certain teachings, and they were supposed to be living a certain holy life. And their goal was to have this union with God after death, which is very similar to what a Christian might be thinking about. And the Buddha is saying that it's impossible to have this union with God as long as these five hindrances are in the mind. And he's relating it to the Brahmin because sometimes these Brahmin would come and learn with the Buddha or some of the students of the Buddha. They would come and learn so that they could learn about moral conduct and other things like this to then be able to share with their students or with people who were coming to them for help as well. So let me know what questions you guys have on this chapter, chapter 30. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions here. So let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter 31. This is titled, Then the Tathagata Guides Him Further. When, student, the noble disciple possesses mindfulness in full awareness, then the Tathagata guides him further. Come, monk, resort to a secluded resting place, the forest, the foot of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw. He resorts to a secluded resting place, the forest, the foot of a tree, a mountain, a ravine, a hillside cave, a charnel ground, a jungle thicket, an open space, a heap of straw. On returning from his alms round, which is gathering food, after his meal, he sits down, folding his legs crosswise, setting his body erect, and establishing mindfulness before him. Abandoning craving for the world, he resides with a mind free from craving. He purifies his mind from craving. Abandoning ill will and hatred, same thing. He's abandoning that, cultivating compassion. Abandoning complacency, he develops this perception of light. Then abandoning restlessness and worry, he resides unagitated and inwardly peaceful. Abandoning doubt, having gone beyond this doubt and confidence, the wholesome states arise. Having thus abandoned these five hindrances, imperfections of the mind that weaken wisdom, he resides reflecting on the body as body, dedicated, fully aware and mindful, having put aside craving and grief for the world. Here the Buddha is talking about the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. Then the Tathagata guides him further. Come, monk, reside reflecting on the body as body, but do not think thoughts connected with the body. Reside reflecting on feelings as feelings, but do not think thoughts connected with feelings. Reside reflecting on the mind as mind, but do not think thoughts connected with the mind. Reside reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, 
but do not think thoughts connected with mental objects. With the subsiding of thinking and pondering, by gaining inner tranquility and oneness of mind, he enters and resides in the second jhana, which is without thinking and pondering, based in concentration, filled with excitement and joy. Furthermore, the Buddha explained the third jhana, the fourth jhana, the remembering of past lives, the divine eye or third eye, the destruction of the taints in enlightenment according to the standard Pali reference. So here the Buddha is going through how to basically understand these five hindrances and eliminating them. Of course, breathing mindfulness meditation is going to be able to help one to do that. So that's what he's talking about here, about developing the breathing mindfulness meditation. And that's what's ultimately going to help to soften up the mind and loosen it so that the mind can let go and abandon central desire, ill will, complacency, restlessness, and worry and doubt. But there's other more direct teachings that the Buddha shares that directly eliminates each one of these. But you need to have breathing mindfulness meditation on board and consistently doing that to accumulate the benefits so that then when you're bringing in the other teachings that he shares and other discourses that you can more readily eliminate these five hindrances. And then developing of the four foundations of mindfulness, the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects are going to help you to eliminate the five hindrances as well. Any questions on these? Okay, I'm not seeing any questions. So let's go to the next chapter, which is chapter 32. The cause and reason for the true teachings to endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. So here he's going to give you some details about how to ensure that his teachings go forward and continue in the world after his death. That's what final Nibbana or final enlightenment is. For a being who's enlightened, we don't call it death. We call it final enlightenment because that's where the body and the mind separate. And now the mind will no longer experience any physical sensations that are painful. The Buddha gives discourses and other parts of his teachings where he gives exact things to ensure the sustaining of his teachings. But here he's going to give you some other things that relate to the sustaining of his teachings as well. Master Gotama, what is the cause and reason why the true teachings do not endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana or final enlightenment? And what is the cause and reason why the true teachings endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana, final enlightenment? It is, Brahman, because the four foundations of mindfulness are not developed and cultivated that the true teachings do not endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. And it is because the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated that the true teachings endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. What for? Here, Brahman, a monk resides reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly comprehending, mindful, having removed craving and displeasure in regard to the world. And now he says the same thing about feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mental objects as mental objects. These are the four foundations of mindfulness, which I just taught last Sunday in our group learning program. It is because these four foundations of mindfulness are not developed and cultivated that the true teachings do not endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana. And it is because the four foundations of mindfulness are developed and cultivated that the true teachings endure long after a Tathagata has attained final Nibbana or enlightenment. So these relate to 
developing awareness of the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. That's ultimately what's going to really propel you to enlightenment because by understanding and having awareness of those four foundations, you can actually get way ahead of the curve and cut off discontent feelings as their bodily sensations. So by maintaining a practice of the four foundations of mindfulness, not only are you going to get to enlightenment, but the more enlightened beings that are in the world, this is what's going to sustain the teachings in the world. Because by the time you get to enlightenment, you won't ever forget the teachings that led to your enlightenment. That wisdom will be deeply in your mind. You won't be able to forget that in any way, shape, or form, unless there was some kind of brain injury or something like that that would affect the mind. You could you know, not understand it by that point, but by that point, the mind's already enlightened. So by having these four foundations of mindfulness well-developed and lots of people getting to enlightenment, then the teachings of a Tathagata will exist in the world for longer and longer periods of time. So let me see what questions you guys have. I see Francis is asking a question here. Do you have any other resource to read on how to eliminate these hindrances? I am still not so clear on how to cultivate the four foundations of mindfulness. So the best way to learn how to eliminate the hindrances is I've taught classes. I haven't written about it, but I've taught classes on it. You can go to our YouTube channel and search for five hindrances, and you'll probably see a good five or six different classes. They're all essentially presenting the same content. But if you listen to the most recent one, you'll see what I was teaching there because I give you exact understanding of what those hindrances are and how to actually eliminate them. I teach that class at the very end of every group learning program. So you'll see it at least probably five or six times out there on our YouTube channel. But I just haven't written about it because it's better to explain it than actually to write about it. So I'm still unsure how to cultivate the four foundations of mindfulness. So you cultivate those in meditation and then you also practice them outside of meditation. That's how you actually cultivate them. So awareness of the bodily sensations. When you're in breathing mindfulness meditation, if you notice that an itch is occurring in the body, that is an indication to the mind and you're noticing a bodily sensation. That's not the same bodily sensation associated with discontentedness arising due to craving, but that's one of the ways that you start to develop awareness of the bodily sensations is that while you're in meditation, if you notice any pain or an itch or something like this, the mind is aware of that. And that's where I share with you that you should try to cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back to the breath rather than hurrying up and itching it right away. Instead, try to elongate that time where you can just cut off the thought of the mind going to that bodily sensation, whatever it is. If there's pain in the body, adjust the bodily position. Don't allow that pain to continue because that pain is there for a reason to tell the mind, hey, you need to take some action here. There's some pain in the physical body. But if it's just like a bodily sensation or something like that, you would like to cut that off and let it go. And now you would like to practice that in daily life where you're starting to become aware when there's anger or frustration, irritation, or any of these other discontent feelings, even conditioned pleasant feelings, there's going to be some bodily sensation associated with that before the mind experiences the actual feeling. So you should be able to discern this is the bodily sensation and you can see the tightening of the chest or in the throat or the heat in the face or the pressure in the skull or if there's shyness, maybe you have queasiness in the stomach. There's different bodily sensations with different feelings that are about to arise. 
even the pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and others, there's usually tingling in the shoulders, in the neck, in the back of the head, and over the skull. And you should be able to see these bodily sensations starting to elongate. You know, when you first start noticing, it might just be a brief little glimpse. But as you're meditating and you're developing more and more awareness of the mind, you can get to a point where those bodily sensations are there for eight or 10 seconds, which is really nice when you can get to that point because it gives you more time to cut off and let go of discontentedness as a bodily sensation. So you should be able to see those bodily sensations. And then you should be able to see, well, boom, there is the feeling. It goes from this bodily sensation of tightening of the chest and heat in the face and pressure in the skull. And then boom, there's the anger or there's the frustration. It's a feeling in the mind. And you see that as something completely separate from the bodily sensations. And then when you're noticing that anger is coming to the mind, now if you're angry for several hours or a day or two or a week, that's the condition of the mind. And you should be able to notice that and observe that, that ah, the mind has been agitated for three hours. That's awareness of the condition of the mind. And then there's those mental objects. Be aware of this ill will that's in the mind, that now the mind wants to be vengeful and resentful towards somebody. It's coming from this mental object of ill will that's in the mind. So you're developing it in meditation, but then you're paying attention to it outside of meditation. And this is what helps you to develop awareness of the four foundations of mindfulness. And this is explaining the life cycle that discontentedness is going to take when there's craving, desire, attachment in the mind. It's going to go through the bodily sensations, the feelings, it's going to affect the condition of the mind, and then it's going to feed this mental object. So it's about knowing how to recognize them and cutting them off during and after meditation. Yes, whenever you observe any bodily sensations associated with discontentedness arising, you should try to cut that off and let it go. And you'll get better and better at that as you meditate and as you practice this in daily life. And then the same thing with those conditioned feelings, the discontentedness. When you see those arising in the mind, you would like to cut those off and let those go. Sometimes you need to redirect the mind, but more and more you can do it internally. And then the same thing when you see the condition of the mind is being affected for several hours or days, you would like to cut that off and let it go. All the while, you're working to eliminate these mental objects, those 10 fetters. Tomorrow in the group learning program, I'm going to be teaching those 10 fetters and how to actually eliminate them. Just as an introductory for the group learning program, I'm not going to go into the same level of depth that I might do in a course or a retreat or something like that. But at least you can learn the mental objects tomorrow and how to eliminate those because you're going to need specific things to break up the mental objects and eliminate those out of the mind. Okay, perfect. You're welcome, Francis. Let me see if we have any questions anywhere else. Okay, I'm not seeing any questions anywhere else. So let's go to the next one, which is chapter 33. Here, great good of mindfulness directed to the body. Monks, even as one who encompasses with his mind the great ocean, includes thereby all the streams that run into the ocean, just so, whoever develops and cultivates mindfulness directed to the body includes all wholesome qualities that pertain to true wisdom. Monks, one thing when developed and cultivated leads to a strong sense of motivation, leads to great good, 
leads to great security from bondage or enlightenment, leads to mindfulness and clear comprehension, leads to the attainment of wisdom and vision, leads to a peaceful dwelling in this very life, leads to realization of the fruit of wisdom and liberation. What is that one thing? Mindfulness directed to the body. So this is what you're doing to develop that foundation of mindfulness of the bodily sensations, Francis, is you're developing the mindfulness to be aware of those bodily sensations that are occurring in meditation and outside of meditation as well. And here the Buddha is going through a whole bunch of successive things and talking about the tranquility of the mind. He talks about that here and developing the understanding of the wholesomeness of mind that you're looking to cultivate. Here he's talking about training the mind to eliminate unwholesome qualities. Here he's talking about, uh, what is he talking about? Monks, when one thing is developed and cultivated, unarisen, unwholesome qualities arise and arisen wholesome qualities increase and expand. So here he's basically saying when you develop these foundation of mindfulness of bodily sensations, you can eliminate the unwholesome qualities and you can cultivate and encourage the wholesome qualities. That's part of right effort of the Eightfold Path, but you need the awareness of the bodily sensations to be able to do that. Then here he's talking about elimination of ignorance by cultivating true wisdom and eliminating the conceit. We've talked about those things. Here he's talking about that breathing mindfulness meditation leads to discernment, which is wise decision-making by wisdom, which leads to enlightenment. You're going to need to make wise decisions and you need wisdom to cultivate the mind in order to make those wise decisions. You wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without cultivating wisdom and without making wise decisions. And that's why you're not believing teachings. So the more you cultivate wisdom, you can then train the mind to make wise decisions that don't produce unwholesome results. And it's the breathing mindfulness meditation and awareness of bodily sensations that are going to help you to do that. Then the Buddha's talking here, a monk, when one thing is developed and cultivated, penetrates numerous topics, right? So you're going to know a lot of different wisdom as you get to enlightenment. One thing when developed and cultivated leads to the realization of stream entry, once returner, non-returner, and arahanship. These are the four stages of enlightenment. So he's saying breathing mindfulness meditation leads to that. Then he's saying all these other things in terms of cultivation of wisdom, right? I'm just kind of moving through this, just paying attention to our timing. Uh, let's see. And uh, there's a whole bunch of other things that he's sharing here. You guys are welcome to read this as part of the class. You can get these books from the website. And then what I do is I spend time here helping you to better understand those. And then this is the last chapter that I will help you guys to understand. This is where the Buddha is actually talking about his development of his meditation practice. He's saying that he meditates three times a day, morning, midday, and evening, because during his lifetime, they didn't have any watches or timepieces to say any exact time. So that's what I encourage people to do is to not have an exact time for meditation, but instead have these anchor points like morning, midday, and evening. And understand that your meditation is going to adjust and slide within that. What you'll notice is one time a day meditation, it's not enough to get to enlightenment. Two times a day is very significant. You're going to see huge improvements. Your frequency is actually more important than your duration. If you can get that third one in in the middle of the day, you'll see a significant improvement in the condition of your mind. There was a period of time where I was meditating 
uh, like once or twice a day. And I read this and I realized the Buddha meditated three times a day. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not going to believe this teaching. Let me see if it's actually true. So I went a period of time where I consistently meditated three times a day. And I observed the improvement to the condition of the mind. It was profound and significant. So this is actually the truth that, yes, just like all the other teachings of the Buddha, He's speaking the truth that this is what leads to the most improvement to the condition of the mind. At this point, you know, I'm meditating at least two to three times a day, sometimes meditating more depending on the classes and courses and retreats that I'm teaching and what kind of meditation I'm doing on my own versus with students. But if you can build up to two meditations a day, this would be ideal. A household practitioner meditating in the morning and evening, you'll see significant improvements there. If you can get a midday meditation, you'll see a lot of improvement there as well. So here the Buddha is just describing this in relationship to a shopkeeper that if you were running a business, you would apply diligence to developing your business morning, midday and evening. And this is gonna lead to acquiring wealth and increasing wealth that you already have acquired because the unenlightened mind can understand that like yeah if i apply effort to my business morning midday and evening it's going to produce more wealth well the same thing is true about meditation that if you apply effort and energy to developing your meditation practice in this same way that you'll see the significant improvement to your concentration and to the quality of your mind so without having read these last two chapters let me just see if you guys have any questions on either of them you can put that into facebook youtube or in zoom okay i'm not seeing any questions anywhere related to these so what i'll do then is just thank you all for coming to class thank you for your questions i think it's wonderful when students decide to spend time to do that inner work of learning and developing their practice I really admire people who spend time and dedication to developing their practice of these teachings. So thank you all for your dedication and diligence to learning and asking questions. Tomorrow in the group learning program, you can attend that either a Sunday morning Thai time or Sunday evening uh, Thai time. I'm now live streaming from the temple as well as here at home in the evenings. I'm going to be teaching the 10 fetters and the four stages of enlightenment. You're welcome to attend those and you can ask questions and join along either when I'm teaching at the temple or I'm teaching here at home. You'll be able to do that and develop your practice. And then on Wednesday, I'm going to be teaching the loving kindness meditation in the evening as part of our group learning program. In the morning, I'm going to be at the temple. I'm going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation and teaching the three poisons is what I usually teach in the morning on Wednesday for that particular class. So you guys are welcome to join. You have all these options for classes and you can just decide which ones work out for you and which ones you would like to attend. So thank you all for joining. I'll perhaps see you guys in one of these future classes. Remember that next week we're going to be moving into volume eight, chapters one through 10. You're welcome to study those either before or after class and during class as well. So we'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. 
A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.